You're listening to the Otherworldly Oracle official podcast, a Burning Hallows production. We are your otherworldly hosts, Alora and Kitty. And today we have set out to untangle the complex definitions, history, and lore of the witches familiar, what they really are, how the church is responsible for the modern concept of the familiar spirit, and the difference between familiar spirits and magical pets. It's going to be a feral journey of wild exploration. So grab your cuppa and settle in. Kitty. Yes, I loved that intro too, especially the feral journey part. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Oh, I'm struggling. I'm I'm on the struggle bus this morning. Oh, well, <laughs> do you have your coffee? Oh, yes, girl, but I'm only a quarter of the way through this cup. So Ooh, get sip <laughs> I know, right? So, usually I have two cups. Oh, I was going to say, usually I have two cups before we record, but. Oh, okay. Not today. Okay. Oh, tell you before we get going, the feral word reminded me that probably the best compliment I ever got in my life was by my husband. And he told me that I'm feral. (laughs) (laughs) And he was like, don't get mad. But you know, I I said that you were feral because you never know what's going to come out your mouth. And I was like, that's the best compliment I've ever gotten. (laughs) Anyway. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. So speaking of feral. Yeah. Are you, are you currently working with a feral familiar spirit? No. (laughs) Well, so no, and no, we don't have any magical pets either. Do you? I have no familiar spirit, but I do feel like my cat is a magical pet. Mm. I have like a connection with her. I haven't really ever had with any other animal, but I'm sure we're going to get into all that anyway. Yeah. Okay. So I think the first thing that we should do is kind of define what the term familiar is in actuality and kind of dispel some myths or misunderstandings around what a familiar is, because I think there's, there's a lot of misconception. There is. And, and some of it gets pretty convoluted too, which probably adds to the, the misconceptions. So, yeah. So a familiar spirit is, uh, and the definitions vary based on source. So according to the dictionary is a demon attending and obeying a witch often said to assume the form of an animal but also a close friend or associate. According to Anne Mora in Green Witchcraft 2, the term familiar actually came from early Christianity's obsession with good and evil. The servants that served the Roman Catholic bishops were called familiars. So when the witch hunts really started to gain ground, it was expected that witches would have servant counterparts like the bishop did. But because they were witch servants, they must be evil demons instead of, you know, godly helpers. Wow. So in fact, the word familiar comes from the Latin familiaris, which means household servant. Oh, ooh, ooh, this, this is really interesting. I don't know. <laughs> I also found too, when you said the second, like a second definition in the dictionary is a close friend or associate. 
Mm. I mean, yeah, it's just all very interesting and kind of, yeah, it, it gives more context to the whole thing, I think. <laughs> I loved your reaction. <laughs> Ooh, I like that. I've never read that before. I've read a lot about familiars, but that was new on me. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's nice, though, because it's not often that you don't know something. So, yeah, it's fun to get your, like, honest reaction when you hear new information. <laughs> I know a lot of things. <laughs> whatever (laughs) okay i'll send you a text message and you're like oh yeah know all about it and i'm like dang (laughs) like i think that i've found something unique and you're like not hilarious okay you gonna remind the listeners of the difference between spirit guides and familiars because i think i think you should (laughs) oh okay well we did talk about this briefly in the first episode of the season with george Harris. yes essentially they're both spirits, right? But the difference is, is that familiar spirits require an exchange of energy, whereas the spirit guide is more of just, they're around to guide you. They don't really, you know, they don't expect energy from you necessarily. Right. Which, I mean, that makes sense to me. Which then kind of poses a question in my brain, mm-hmm. right? So, if they require an exchange of energy, would that make them energy vampires? Just something to ponder. Yeah. Okay. So the types of familiars that can exist reach far past animal form, whether corporeal or non-corporeal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so dece- uh, the deceased or ghosts, of course, animals, demons or devils, elementals, fae, angels, ancestors, there's all kinds. So... Can I, I just want to cut in real quick and say that I guess my definition of a familiar spirit, I guess it might vary from other people. So I do believe that all of these types of spirits can be familiars, Mm -hmm. but I also think that you can work with these spirits without them requiring an exchange of energy. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Okay. So yeah, which makes it a little confusing, I guess, for people, but... I don't know, but I, I don't have familiar spirits because I don't, the, the spirits that I work with currently don't really require energy from me, but I will give it willingly at times when I can, when I'm not like crazy busy. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think also, I think the other thing that we need to just chat quickly about is the difference between a familiar spirit and a magical pet, because people so often get attached to a, a pet whether it's a cat or dog or a bird or what have you. And they're, especially if they are a magical practitioner, are very keen to say, okay, this is my familiar. Yeah. When in reality, it's probably more of a magical pet. So since I don't have any of those, can you talk about your experience with that? Well, I mean, okay. So I do consider my cat a magical pet. But the the difference is, is that she cannot and does not, well, she probably could if she wanted to, let me not say she can't, she does not aid me in my magical workings. Mm. So meaning she's not, her little spirit isn't going out into the ether and, you know, casting a spell for me, for instance. Right. I'm saying that she couldn't, I'm just saying that she doesn't. And like, to me, that's where I kind of see the difference but she is magical in the in the idea that she will she definitely gets interested when i'm pulling out like my divination tools she is really curious when i'm reading cards or runes 
And like when I'm making teas and things like that, she has no interest in catnip, but for whatever reason, like she's all about cacao nibs, which is, as you know, probably dangerous for animals. But anyway, (laughs) so so I think that like magical pets, you're going to have like a real deep connection with them and, you know, they might be interested in what you're doing magically and, you know, they may even protect you like while you're asleep, while you're dreaming but I, to me, I don't see that as a familiar spirit relationship because I'm not, I'm not giving her food and being like, hey, here's your kibble. Can you go ahead and run out into the ether and cast this love spell for me? You know what I mean? <laughs> right. And I know people think, you know, oh, the, this is my pet. I have a real deep connection with them. And so it must be my familiar, but. And I know in other traditions, which we're going to get more into as we go along, but I know in other traditions, familiar spirits also teach the practitioner how to do things and kind of open, open the doors essentially to higher awareness and understanding and et cetera. Yes. So I think that's another dimension of a familiar spirit that doesn't really get talked about a lot. It certainly wasn't something that I think about right off the top of my head when I hear familiar spirits, another way that they're different from magical pets. Yes. And I have an example of that, but we're going to get into that when we talk about some of the medieval times familiars. Okay. So history of the familiar spirit in the Western world. Mm -hmm. So let's start. (laughs) Let's start there. So let's go all the way back to the Bible, which this was so interesting for me to research because you know that I'm a history nut. This varies between versions of the Bible, which is crazy interesting because in the King James Bible, which is the most widely reproduced Bible among Protestant religions, Mm -hmm. I believe often the wording is something similar to do not seek those who have familiar spirits. Right. But if you look in the new American standard Bible, which is the Catholic Bible, the wording is actually do not seek mediums or spiritists or necromancers. There is no mention of familiar spirits specifically. Mm. However, when you research this topic, it will say that verses refer to familiar spirits, even though they're not mentioned. So this lends to the idea that Christianity as a whole is confused (laughs) as to the definition of a familiar spirit uh, and even suggests that Protestants changed the, the language as they knew Catholic bishops employed what the church called familiars. So essentially, it's a warning against both witchcraft and Catholicism. Like, (laughs) maybe, you know what I mean? Like, well, actually, yeah, it could be that because you know how the Protestants and Catholics were like killing each other back in the day, too. Right, exactly. So if they knew that the bishop's helpers were referred to as familiars. I love how they just like change up words to fit like the narrative. But anyway, right. When I was reading this, I was dumbfounded because I thought, is this really like, is the reason they changed this because they didn't want, you know, they wanted people to be Protestant and not Catholic. I mean, of course they didn't want people to be witches or pagans, but at this point, I think that was more like a duh. (laughs) You know what I mean? Oh yeah. So they're, they're, you know, maybe not now, I don't know, but like back in the day they were at odds right the protestants and the catholics so yeah right good good to think about 
I read a lot of historical books, primary sources in researching for this podcast and something really interesting stood out to me. Many of the sources associated familiar spirits with the ability of divination, Hmm. which I thought was crazy interesting. And I don't know if this was meant as a way for those associated with the church to condemn anyone who had any type of Claire abilities, right? So anybody that might have had the ability to see clear see or clear feel would have been deemed as divination, familiar spirit, evil. (laughs) But it does make sense as to why, at least in part, people raised in Christianity are frightened of their abilities more often than not, because there's this deep history and deep seated reasoning that divination, witchcraft, familiar spirits, all of this is wrong. Yes. And evil. I have run into some Christians who have abilities. Some are in my family, you know, I don't want to say like crazy abilities, but abilities to sense things and whatnot. And they usually just attribute it to, you know, God is telling me this or God is showing me this, you know, that kind of thing. Because yeah, they're scared to say like, Well, I know this because it just came to me. (laughs) Yeah. And in these books and primary sources, familiars are divided up into categories, which divination familiars and then household familiars. And then, yeah, so it it was fascinating for sure. I need these primary sources. (laughs) Yeah. So one of them was on sacred text. Okay. I love that site. I was just on there the other day. Hey, that's my go-to site for like weird, awesome spirituality stuff. They have all the good old stuff, man. Like, and and things that you don't hear, you can't really find in modern books. It's great. Yeah. I got turned onto that site when I was in uni and we were reenacting the trial of Galileo because they literally have that whole thing on there. Galileo Figaro. Yes. (laughs) Not talking about Queen. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Okay, so moving on from the Bible, the Middle Ages. So why don't you tell us about some of these 16th and 17th century examples? Yes, and interestingly, ooh, this is getting really interesting because I can just add what you were just talking about with the Protestant and Catholic differentiation of the Bible. Ooh, ah. I just <laughs> kind of clicked there. So obviously in the Middle Ages and the early modern era where we were seeing a lot of the witch trials and accusations and executions, etc. Obviously during this time period, the church has risen to power throughout Europe. And it's interesting because you said that the familiar spirit is mentioned in the KJV, the King James Version, which is essentially a Protestant version of the Bible. It's also interesting to note that um, at some point, and I don't remember, I don't, don't quote me on the exact year or anything, because the Catholic Church was also uh, conducting witch trials up to a certain point, and then it was like the Protestants were really hammering at home, we'll say. And, <laughs> uh, so I wonder if at that point when the Protestants were really conducting the majority of the witch trials, there was some point where the Catholic Church was going, you know what? No, we don't really believe that witches exist. Like there there was a a line somewhere and I don't remember when that Hmm. was. Anyway, I wonder if after that point, that's why the Protestants were using the familiar spirit accusation 
in their witch trials because it was a part of that Bible at that point. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I totally understand what you're saying. Yeah. Ooh. Anyway, just a theory. So, okay. During this time period, most of the data that we have about familiar spirits during the witch trial period comes from the 16th and 17th century witch trials in England and Scotland. Yes. The first familiar spirit that I wanted to talk about is his name was Thomas Reed or Tom Reed. And he was the familiar spirit of Bess or Bessie Dunlop. Of whom mm. So Bessie yeah. was an accused witch living in Escher, Scotland, where we actually have ancestors, Laura. Uh, is this? Okay. Oh, I'm looking at the word and I'm like, that's how you say that? Okay. Yes. I had to remember I asked George, I'm like, how do you say Irisher? <laughs> And he said, it's Escher. And I was like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, I feel like an idiot. Thank you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, there might be a little bit of accent issues coming into play there. But anyway, we're going to go with Escher, Scotland, in the 16th century. She lived during a time when the witch trials in Scotland were, like, really raging. It was a, a big time for accusing and executing witches apparently at this point. So this yeah. is like the red scare in the US. Yeah. It was it was like okay. the worst of the witch trial times in Scotland. You know, more deaths per capita. I don't know how you want to say it. And I don't mean to make light of it, but anyway, poor poor people. But anyway, so she was a farmer's wife. She was tried and burned at the stake after her testimony and confessed to having a fil- fam- this familiar spirit named Thomas Reed. Interestingly, Thomas Reed was not, did not take the form of an animal. He was not an animal. He was the um, soul or deceased soul of a former barony officer from the hmm. area who was killed in a battle 20-some years before he came to Bessie. Hmm. What was really interesting when I was researching this is that she met him when she was driving some cattle like near this nearby castle. She was crying because she was just falling on some really hard times at home and her newborn or her infant child was very ill. Hmm. And she was crying as she was walking through this area with a, a castle nearby. And this spirit came out of a hole in a stone near the castle Hmm. yeah and apparently that's also where he would also return was back into the hole in the stone so the idea here is that he became her familiar spirit he offered his time knowledge and advice on healing remedies and prophecy as you mentioned the divination Mm -hmm familiars and also guided her to Elfame or Elfland to meet the queen of Elfland. Hmm. Yeah. So, and as, as far as the like energy exchange goes, he asked Bessie to write some of his past wrongs from when he was still alive with some of his family members and supposedly even gave her a token to provide to these individuals so that they would know it was him, which I found really cool. Wow. I know. Isn't that awesome? That's like the coolest story. So there are some scholars that claim he might not have been a ghost because apparently he, they said, well, he manifested physically because in the stories he can handle solid objects, which I thought was ridiculous, but 
Yeah. That's a really interesting one. And I, I've just always, she's one of my favorite, which is from history. Yeah. I remember when we did the episode with George, we, you were talking about her. Yeah. She, she, so she comes from an area and area in Escher <laughs> that I think I told you my ancestors come from, I have them documented there during that time period, but I cannot, i cannot find her anywhere in my family tree. So that's kind of a bummer, but <laughs> we know. She yeah. And I think, here, so. I think that you found out that my ancestors are from the same area. The witch is accused and executed at Pendle Hill in England in 1612 had a few familiars that took the form of animals and some that took the form of a man. Mm-hmm. One named Elizabeth Demdike confessed to having a familiar named Tib, a spirit that manifested in the form of a brown dog. So most of the Pindle witches had familiars that took animal form, except for Anne Chaddix, who claimed hers was like a Christian man. (laughs) I'm sorry, that's hilarious. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know if he really was a Christian man or if the Christian was thrown in there. Who knows? Just for... About to kill her. So she's like, (laughs) up yours, you know. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So she claimed hers was like a Christian man who came to her and asked her for her soul. Mm -hmm. His name was Fancy. (laughs) (laughs) His name was Fancy. Like that is the funniest name for a familiar ever. Which then takes me back to Reba McIntyre. There's a, she has a, like, she had a hit song in the early nineties, late eighties called Fancy. Oh, I'm happy. Because I've been, I've been listening. You brought me over to the, the countryside. <laughs> well, long story short, the song is about a girl who is poorer than dirt. So her mother makes her a prostitute and then she becomes a millionaire. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that's an upward spin to it, I guess. So it's just a familiar name, Fancy, that helped her. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's hilarious. Okay, so tell us about the witch's mark. Right. So the witch's mark. This was a mark somewhere on the accused witch's body that indicated to the witch hunter that he or she was suckling a familiar spirit. This could have been anything on your body. I mean, literally a birthmark, a third nipple, a mole, a weird looking freckle, a zit. This was used as evidence that the person was a witch. So, I mean, you could find a freaking witch's mark on anybody if that's the case. Oh, yeah. And, you know, today in, in the modern, modern witch era that we live in, finding witch marks is now a source of pride. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I think what I consider to be an actual witch mark is different from what the witch finders mm. were using to accuse and try people, right? So what is the difference? Well, to me, I mean, I think there's different there's different ways of looking at it. I wrote an article on this a while back and it's pretty bad that I don't remember half of what I wrote now, but <laughs> like that I do believe there are palm signs, like there's going to be certain markings on your palm. Think that you may have you may have a birthmark that shows a specific 
I don't know, symbol, like it might represent a symbol of some kind, or maybe like a country that you lived in that, that might have to do with your, like a past life that indicate, you know, like there's a lot of different things. Oh, also though, this was also considered uh, like a, the mark of a witch is if you had an extra digit. Mm. And I, I don't know if I believe that that's an actual witch's mark or not, or I'm not sure about the third nipple thing either. <laughs> I know there's people out there that are like, Hey, I got a third nipple. That means I'm a witch. It's like, all right, well, I'm not going to argue with them. You know? That makes yeah. Sense. What about, what about the, um, if you find a mole on your, I can't remember it's right or left forearm, oh, but I there's, this. yeah, there's like a whole movement about that particular. Well, Mark had moles on my left arm, but I don't have any on my right. So I would be interested to, to see which one that actually is, because if it's on the right and I have no moles, then I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> Typical animals associated as familiars in witch trial times. Before we just say that, I just want to say that there's like a doing my research too on medieval familiar spirits. There's again, conflicting definitions of familiars. Mostly it says that a familiar is a spirit that will take on the form of either a, a person or, you know, an animal. However, there are some witch trials like documentation in England specifically that call that say familiars can actually be actually be in the form of an animal, but they called them imps. So I still feel like that might just be that it was like mixed up in later centuries, but during that time it was still considered a spirit. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes, it does. It gets, it gets, you know, it gets a little hairy. (laughs) Okay. So anyway, (laughs) typical animals that were associated with like as familiar spirits in the witch trial times included the toad, which I think is pretty expected as well as the mouse and cat still pretty expected. The ferret which is odd, but when you start reading about witch trials, you'll notice there's a lot of stories about ferrets that are like linked to witches. Uh, d- ferrets. Yeah. I can't stand ferrets. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a, I have this, I have a deep phobia of mice and rodents. Oh, I'm sorry. And, I didn't mean to and say ferrets are under that umbrella. I said the bad words. No, like. I had to sleep on somebody's floor once and they had two ferrets and it was like my worst nightmare. They're, they're, they stink a little bit. That's what I'm not a big fan of, but. A little bit. They're disgusting, but sorry, ferret lovers. I just can't, I'm not, I'm not trying to offend anyone. I'm just saying for me personally, I can't do it. I got you. And if you have a ferret, that's cool. And I'll still come over and hang out with you, but you're going to have to put it in its cage or in its enclosure while I'm in your house because I will lose it. (laughs) I have to say that I'm like that with pet iguanas. I don't, I think they're cool, but I don't want to be near them. Right. Like they're cute to look at from over there. You know? (laughs) Yeah. One time when I was young, like there was like, I had a friend who had two iguanas and they got huge and they were like, oh, here just let it walk on you. And when it did, it scratched me all up. (gasps) Mm. Like, I don't like this. Get it off me. (laughs) So I understand what you're saying. 
Okay. In addition to we're gonna dogs, I feel like that's pretty expected because we've ever been talking about dogs. Goats. Mm. Black Philip, anybody from The Witch? <laughs> flies. Which I thought was really interesting. Like, come on, flies, come flies, on. Yes. I think I wonder, this is my theory. I wonder if it has to do with Loki because he's known to shape shift into the form of a fly. Uh but maybe. I don't know. It's, it's just a theory. It could be, right? Because anyway, okay, butterflies, birds, the hare, or, you know, rabbit, essentially, snake, wolf, and fox. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I, I just recently found a link to um, foxes and witches in Switzerland in medieval times. But I had to, I did a lot of digging before I even found any mention of foxes related to witches. So I thought that was. So this is kind of contradictory to what I was able to research and find out. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> because, well, because from what I read, cats were left out for the majority. Modern familiar spirits actually, like maybe it came after. I don't know. Came after what? Maybe not. Okay, so modern familiar spirits in the Western world actually began when the church decided that familiars aiding witches were demonic, right? And so they chose animals associated with pagan deities to deem as familiars when in service of a witch. So as to decide, so as to assign them demonic powers, right? Right. Okay, because essentially they're assigning demonic powers to animals that are associated with very beloved pagan figures, right? right? Cause flies and Loki, right? Because it's all about <laughs> conversion. However, essentially through this process, the church divided the animal kingdom by good and evil, right? So animals that were deemed demonic became familiars and those deemed right and good were adopted by Christians, such as the lamb and the fish and the dove. So, but interestingly, the bull and the horse and the cat were left out of this divisive practice because they were deemed as too valuable to denigrate, even though they were considered important pagan animals. Hmm. So for example, the cat was too important because it prevented disease because it was responsible for catching mice, which spread disease. That makes sense. So I don't know if this division of, Animals came after the witch trials. I'm just going off of sources that I've read. And and this is why it gets confusing because one source will say something and then another source says something else. And it could, you know, so back to the witch trial familiars, I wanted to add now that we're on this topic of the cat and whether it was evil or not moving forward to the Salem witch trials. You'll be interested to know that Tituba was said to have familiar spirits, a red cat, a black cat, a hog, and a black dog. Yeah. I mean, it's super interesting and who knows, like what, that's why this stuff is so hard to research. Maybe it depends on the church though, too. Remember like the Catholics and the Protestants were so like at odds at some points, they might've been saying completely different things, right? Oh, that's true too. But also too, with the Salemish trials. Sarah Good, an accused witch, was said to have a yellow bird familiar that suckled between her fingers. I just wanted to say that part. (laughs) Suckled between her fingers. 
Before we get more into the modern familiar spirits, I wanted to add that I recently bought the snake animal spirit body ritual oil from spiritnest.com. Ooh. Yeah. And I actually really love it. I've bought oils from them before, but this one I plan on using in conjunction with working with the God Loki. That makes sense. Yeah. And I think that there's different ways that you can use them. But what I have done in the past is I take a cleansing ritual bath and then basically I oil myself up before invocation. (laughs) Oil. She's oiling it up. folks. oiled up people. (laughs) (laughs) Does, does that help you shape shift? I mean, I think that that's definitely a part of the concept, right? I haven't used it yet in that regard, but it's definitely worth a shot. Yeah. Hmm. I've made yeah. my own snake oil before <laughs> for shape shifting, but I do like the way these smell like really freaking good. And they're just really, they just kind of soak into your skin. Do they ship to Australia? <laughs> I don't know. That's a good question. Definitely going to have to take a sneaky peek over there at their oils for sure yeah no their oils are really really good the other one that i really like is the witch's brew oil i use that a lot i'll put on my hands before i read sometimes we were saying how the church assigned evil and good essentially to the whole of the animal kingdom (laughs) or probably just the most common animals and probably the ones that were most associated with beloved pagan figures were wolves on the evil list uh no but dogs were well that's interesting because i know that they people were killing off wolves left and right during you know the days of yore because they ended up the days of yore from the British Isles, they don't have, or they didn't used to have wolves for a long time because they were killed off. Same with the bears. So I wondered if that was why, but maybe not. So <laughs> let's play a game. I'm going to say a deity and you're going to tell me the first animal that you, that like comes into your mind and we'll see how many ended up as familiars. All right. Ready? I have to look. Yep. Hell. Um, probably like snake. Okay. Shiva. I don't know anything about Shiva. You tell me. I would have said snake for Shiva. Oh, really? Okay. And I would have said hound for hell. (gasps) See? (laughs) Athena. Owls. Yeah, that's what I would have said too. And the Morrigan. Ravens, crows, wolves, uh, pigs. (laughs) I said one. One. Didn't have to give me all their animals. That I don't. Yeah. Okay. So some of the first familiar spirits way back when in the Western world were snakes, dogs, owls, and ravens. Mm -hmm. Coincidence? I don't think so. (laughs) Soon after frogs, toads, lizards were added because they were a nuisance and thus deemed evil. So any animal that was a nuisance was also added to that list. I mean, but we need these animals on a certain level to some degree, but I I get what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. So 
like I said before, the idea of animals as familiars was ultimately to assign evil to pagan gods and goddesses. Yeah. Through their associated animals. Yeah. And then in comes the 20th century and the practice of animals as familiars becomes widely adopted or, well, I say widely adopted, widely adopted in the sense that we see it, you know, start becoming pop culture almost. Yeah. Okay. So like, if you go back, well, in the 20th and 21st century, you see TV shows where like Sabrina, the teenage witch has a familiar name, Salem, you know? So where do we go from here with this discussion? Where do we go from here? Familiar or magical house pet? Oh, the debate is never ending. I don't know. I think that I just don't, I don't, I'm not saying that it's not possible because I'm the kind of person we've talked about this. I'm the kind of person that I have really strong beliefs and I can sit here and be like, I believe this, blah, blah, blah. But I'm not going to tell you that you're wrong either. It's just what I believe. Right. You had a different experience for me because everyone experiences your own path, your own spirituality, your own life is completely different from what I'm living. Right. So, but for me, I still think there's a line between a familiar spirit and a magical pet. Right. Yeah. This is historically, this is a huge debate because pets have not been familiars historically up till like the 20th century. However, that doesn't mean that a pet can't be a familiar, but I also think that familiars familiar pets are way more rare than having a magical pet. I agree. It just add to the mix and confuse even more. I did actually read something about the medieval times where people were actually scared to bring animals into their homes as pets for fear that we, they would be accused that they were mm. spirits. Right. Further confuse things and the audience. <laughs> yeah. But I think I don't. Hmm. Yeah, I still think that there's a line. It just maybe to other people, it got, it was more concrete, like in their minds. Does that make sense? I don't know. Then it actually was. Yeah. And, you know, we've been talking about the Western world throughout this podcast. And I think it's important to bring up that outside of the Western world, familiar spirits are even more complex. So while familiar spirits do work for the magical practitioner, they also serve the role of teacher. So in many African diasporic practices, so we're talking about hoodoo, voodoo, umbanda, condomble, uh, santeria, all, all of, all of those types of practices, familiars are actually met on the astral plane where the magical practitioner consults with them to gain instruction on how to accomplish a particular working. And then the familiar tells them what they require in exchange and then lends their aid. But I think at least from what I understand, the big difference is, is that in those practices, a familiar spirit never takes a corporeal form. Right. So even the uh, possibility that a familiar could be a pet is that's not even a thing. Right. And those traditions, I got you. Yeah. Right. Right. I know it's, it's fascinating and it's complicated. And yeah, I think, I think far too often we in our modern world 
rely on our current books and authors and things like that, which is fine, but there's less digging into primary sources. And so things get really simplified. Yes. And then you find out it's not so simple. Right. Yeah. It's repeated and not questioned. Oh no. You're like, you're spot on. (laughs) And I I don't know about you, but I'm the kind of person I I've always been like this. I was like this in nursing school. I was like this, you know, when I was a kid and questioning like my Bible study teacher. Okay. That's cool that you're telling me this, but like, why, where does that come from? Where does Mm. it come from? You know? So you can't just tell me, Oh, this is how it is. And then not tell me why or where, where it originates. Right. And I think that's, I think that's an important thing for, for witches in general, that everyone should, you should question things and want to like experience it yourself and dig a little more into even some of the older sources. Well, and I also think that it's important to, an important thing to say is that, you know, as a witch and even as a human being, I think that we should always be in a state of being teachable um, and being able to be, you know, wrong when we find out new information. And that's definitely me. (laughs) Like I'll hold on to a belief until I can see something different from another source. Does that make sense? You're not like that. I'm just kidding. Yeah. Yes, I am girl. I know we, we listen, we have our debates <laughs> and Hey, and sometimes you change my mind and sometimes I change yours. And then sometimes we're just like, well, that's what I think. And, yeah. and then sometimes we're like, you know what? I ain't even listening to you. <laughs> and you're like, go ahead and edit that out of the podcast. <laughs> oh, that's funny. The point is here, people that it is okay to have your own beliefs and to even disagree with what we're saying, but we just encourage you to do more research when it comes to specific topics that you might not know a lot about. Right. Yes, for sure. And let me just tell you, uh, sacredtext.com or .org or whatever it is. That's like one of your best friends. Yeah. I want to say there's like a dash in there or something weird, but you can just Google. Yeah. It's sacred-texts.org, I believe, or .com, whichever it is. Uh, that, but that's a, that's a really good place to go for that kind of stuff also, but also, you know, like things like this in particular that we're talking about that have historical references and accounts and primary sources, you always want to be looking for those. So for that kind of stuff, you can go to Google scholar is great. Um, or you can download from journals that have articles from professors, et cetera. Yeah. There's that one source that I really like too. J store or J it's called J store. J store. I use forever. Honestly, I mean, I'm behind the times with that, but I think I started using that like a year ago, you know, about a year. And that's where I found a lot of stuff about the witch trials in Switzerland and the wolves and foxes that were like associated with that, which you don't find anywhere else online. That's one thing I really miss about having graduated from university because I loved their library because when you went to research, I had access to so think about the JSTOR database. Yeah. 
I had uh, access to like 284 of those databases. That's freaking awesome. And some of them specialize in like history, anthropology, um, and some of them even specialize by topic. Talk dirty to me. (laughs) (laughs) Am I turning you on? (gasps) Oh, Lord. Okay. We're way off topic. So let's, let's turn the wheel. (laughs) Quick decision. (laughs) Let's take the wheel. Oh, Jesus ain't got nothing to do with this podcast. (laughs) The wheel. So are we talking about the fact that pets can be familiars as well? Yeah. So some believe that pets can definitely be familiars. And in that case, and Mora gives in Green Witchcraft 2 gives ways to determine how you can figure out if your pet is a familiar. So one of those ways is you can see the spirit in their eyes, which intriguing. Yeah. You can also, uh, the way that they act around your magical workings, but I think that that can also apply to magical pets. I agree because magical pets will be interested in your work. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but the third one, you meet them on the astral plane before meeting them on the physical plane. I think that, I don't know. Can you do that with magical pets? Meet them on the astral plane? Yeah. Before you meet them in corporeal form. I don't know. I've never had that experience. I mean, I'm sure it's possible. I don't know. So I would say that that's definitely possible. If you believe that pets can be familiars, uh, I definitely think that you, can meet them on the astral before meeting them in corporeal form, but I'm not sure if that also applies to magical pets as well. Um, okay. And if this topic was really juicy for you and you want to know more, we've already mentioned sacred text dot whatever <laughs> org.com <laughs> try both, Just Google it. but there are a couple of books as well. Uh, So Familiars in Witchcraft, uh, Supernatural Guardians in the Magical Traditions of the World by Maha Doust, I believe. That's a name. Yeah, it's M-A-J-A, or maybe that's Maya. Forgive me if I have royally butchered your name. But uh, so that's one (laughs) of the recommended books, as well as The Witch's Familiar by Raven Grimasi. And then if you're on sacred tech, oh, I have it written down sacredtext.com, but it's sacred-text.com. But if you're on there, one particular article, uh, the witch cult in Western Europe by Margaret Murray, she goes through, and I believe that was written in 1921, somewhere in there. Yeah. Well, hang on just a second. I was just going to say, if you're in that article, she breaks it up by divinatory familiar house familiar, et cetera, et cetera. Ah, okay. Good to know. Yeah. I have to check that out. And yes, the last one that I wanted to mention is cunning folk and familiar spirits by Emma Wilby. She's Mm. a witchcraft scholar currently living um, in Britain. And she also wrote the book on Isabel Godey, you know, just to tie it back into our conversation with George Harris before, but yeah, I have this book. It's really well written it's very educational scholarly like but if you're really into this topic it's a really good one to have especially when it comes to 
cunning folk and British folk magic and that kind of thing. Mm, yeah, sounds good. Yeah, I think we should wrap it up before people really get sick of hearing about familiar spirits. <laughs> we would like to thank our listeners for your support, whether you're new or returning. Grant some of your magical energy to your witchy sisters. Subscribe to and review our podcasts. Be sure to check out Alora's website at alorarain.com for tarot readings, numerology, and soul origin profiles. If you're looking for a witchy show on the racier side, subscribe to our shadow podcast, Mimir's Well, now on your preferred podcast app. Also, if you'd like to ask us any questions, if you have topic ideas or you want to discuss sponsorship, or you just want to give us some feedback, please contact us at Burning Hallows Productions, all one word, at gmail.com. And remember, whether you're in the land of the Fae or the land of the ancestors, stay otherworldly.